Hi there. I'm Zach Martinucci. I'm a baker and a culinary anthropologist, which means I love telling stories about food, over food, and through food. I'm also a founder and baker at Rebel Bread, a community bakery and bread school in Denver, Colorado. We do a lot of wholesale baking for coffee shops around the city, have a little storefront, plus sometimes go to farmer's markets, and we teach classes for all kinds of home bakers. If you're new here to this podcast, you should know that this is a standalone episode, a special, if you will, so you don't have to have listened to any previous episodes. But you should know that I talk about the intersections of food, identity, community, and entrepreneurship, and that I encourage you to see yourself as a baker. That is, I'm going to tell you my story about being a baker, and I hope you'll find it applies to whatever you do as well. A little over a year ago, I quit my day job as a full-time croissant roller at another Denver bakery to start Rebel Bread. We fulfilled our first wholesale order on August 22, 2018, and after a long, soft opening period, officially opened to the public on October 21st. That means it's been just over a year since we've been in business, and I've learned a lot about entrepreneurship, small business growth, and myself in that time. So today I'd like to share with you 10 lessons from my first year in business. Disclaimer, these are my opinions. Obviously they are, this is my podcast, but I'm going to give some outright business advice, a little more direct than usual if you've heard me talk before, that I want you to know is not rooted in research or data, it's just what I've come to find true from my own experience. Let's back up a bit first. I grew up in a family that loved to cook and eat together, but no one was a professional cook. After a childhood of watching the cooking channel and making pasta with my friends, I went to study culinary anthropology at UCLA, like food culture, or really culture through food. I designed a fieldwork project that brought me to Bologna, Italy, to study how local identity is represented through the food that people cook and eat. I loved reading and writing and talking about food, and also wanted to cook about it. Around the same time, my dad's cousin opened a bakery in the Bay Area, and my aunts and uncles and cousins and myself all went to help him out. Michael became a mentor to me and was the first person to show me how to bake bread, from start to finish with a real sourdough starter at home in cast iron, just like the bread books teach. I was hooked. I started baking and then selling loaves for all of my friends and neighbors, playing around with different flavors based off their personalities. So Michael suggested I go to baking school, so I went to the San Francisco Baking Institute for professional bread and viennoiserie, which is like coffee shop pastries, and moved here shortly after. I joined my childhood friend Renee, who had started a wedding cakes bakery in a commissary kitchen, and we made plans to open a bakery together. One year after I moved to Denver, we opened Rebel Bread, combining my passions for bringing artisanal bread day-to-day to Denver and sharing the culture, education, and stories behind the food that we make. Now this story begins around opening day, because in summer 2018 is when we started moving into this bakery, I was making plans to quit my day job, and I was competing in Trout Tank. Yes, it is the smaller Denver version of Shark Tank, put on by the Small Business Development Center, although our version is a pitch accelerator education program rather than a full-on competition. It's meant to teach small businesses how to pitch their plans to investors, then connects them with investors so they can get funding and create new jobs in Denver. It's a great program. At the end of August, I was spending every waking hour putting this kitchen together so we could start fulfilling orders. A week after our first order went out, I also competed in the finals of Trout Tank. 
Now, when I started the program, the bakery was all just still an idea, and over the course of those few months, it had become a reality. I no longer needed funding, at least not right now, not from investors. Right now, I needed to go figure out how to start a bakery. I just needed to bake some bread, but I had been given the opportunity to pitch to a room full of local investors. So I did. And rather than pitching a conventional business plan, I told them this story. I told them everything I've told you about my background and how we got started, and also how we were selling bread in coffee shops to start building our customer base. And I was also teaching sold-out cooking classes to prove the bread school half of the business concept. You see, in that first year in Denver, before there was a bakery, I tried to play bakery and put on smaller versions of what I eventually hoped Rebel Bread might become. I took an entrepreneurship course through the Colorado Lending Source, and loved learning about opportunistic advantage, the idea that you don't really know what's out there or how you'll fit into it until you get out there. So you have to get out there. That brings us to business lesson number one, get out there. Do whatever aspect of your business you can do today. And I did. I sold bread in coffee shops at pop-up events. It was literally me and a four-foot table and maybe six loaves of sourdough. I couldn't make a career out of selling six loaves of bread on a Saturday morning in a coffee shop, but it wasn't about that. This experiment gave me the chance to talk to real customers in a place where they hang out and get their feedback and start getting the brand out there. You could say it was a marketing project. Every time I showed up at a coffee shop to sell bread, I happened upon some unexpected connection, one of which was someone who knew someone who had a bakery space for rent. And despite us not looking for a space at the time, and there being pages of applicants applying for this particular one, The man connected us because he heard the landlord was looking for a food business with a focus on community and education. And that's what we were and and wanted. I met the former tenants that afternoon and signed on the space a couple weeks later. The kitchen was, we were told, a punk rock space at a punk rock price. It was gritty with all kinds of funky artwork. We had kitchen roommates that all worked around one another, and we inherited some well-loved equipment from the former pizza place, all of which were covered in stickers, of course. We took it, because this was meant to be a starter kitchen for us, a place to try out all of our ideas while the risk was low, so we could figure out exactly what Rebel Bread was meant to be, and then eventually move into that space. As we were preparing to open a wholesale bakery, I went back to the coffee shops where I had been selling bread and asked the owners and managers who had become my friends if they would be interested in buying pastries from us. And they said yes, so we had potential clients and a strategy to start off our first year. It began with this running joke in the presentation that even though we are a wholesale bakery that specializes in coffee shop pastries, there will be no croissants. And that line, for whatever reason, gets a chuckle from the crowd. Instead, there will be brioche-based pastries and bagels made with baguette dough and sourdough bread. There are so many kinds of pastries that Denver hasn't yet seen, and in the spirit of Rebel Bread wanting to do things a little differently, I wanted to start there. Plus, we were a new, unknown vendor, and it didn't seem realistic to ask established shops to drop their current pastry vendors just to give us a try. That's why I designed a menu that would supplement whatever was currently in the market. Once we got settled with these wholesale clients, we would move on to our retail presence. I had this dream of turning our little space, our walk-up bakery with four bar stools and four chairs outside, into a grab-and-go coffee shop, where our customers would walk by on their way to work to grab a coffee and a pastry, and on the weekends, they would line up at the door and then enjoy their pastries on the curb and take home bread. That's what we did in San Francisco. I wanted to bring that here. 
The presentation continues, showing that when we establish wholesale and build retail throughout the spring, we break even on our initial startup costs by summer, and then, the punchline of the presentation, once we've taken on enough accounts and built our brand and presence, then in fall of 2019, all right, we'll start making croissants. And the room full of bankers applauds. This business strategy and narrative presentation seems to both make sense and be entertaining. Between you and me, I had no intention of ever making croissants. Of course, we would grow and add new products and accounts and all that, but if we're growing in creative ways while everyone else is still making croissants, why would I go that direction? I love croissants, both making and eating them, but I didn't see it as part of our story. It just sounded like a nice, neat conclusion for the sake of this strategy presentation. So here we are, just one year ago, sharing this vision as we're about to launch Rebel Bread. Here's what the judges had to say about it all. One, you need to know your numbers. In the Q&A, they asked me about the profit margins on a loaf of sourdough. It was a simple question meant to test if I had any idea of the actual business that goes into the business, but all I heard was that it was a finance question, so I called up Renee to answer it, and that whole transaction made me look unprepared and uninformed about my work. Two, they said, you're taking on too much. I get this critique a lot. Sometimes it means that the whole concept is confusing since there are so many pieces, but even when I've cleared that up, I'm still told that this is all too much for one business or maybe one person to be doing. Three, the final judge looks at me and says, so Zach, you're quite the entertainer. And then he looks up and down and says, and no socks, huh? I wasn't wearing socks, and the crowd erupts in laughter over this comment. I figured it was in good fun, but all I took away was that I presented about my entire business strategy, this thing I care so much about for the last 15 minutes, and the only thing worth commenting on was what I had decided to wear. I left Trout Tank and went back to starting this bakery, and I wanted to tell you about the details of Trout Tank because it was an oddly significant and timely moment in the foundation of this business. Just as it was becoming real, I also got to hear the critiques about my project from other business leaders. I mold over these comments for the next month, at first thinking, what do they know? I know bakeries, and I know what I'm doing. And on the other hand, I quit my day job a month ago, and these people have had decades-long careers in the industry. Maybe there's some truth to what they're saying. A year later, I've changed my mind about what they had to say. I'll tell you what I mean at the end. Let's continue with what happened in that last year and the other nine lessons I learned along the way. Lesson two. Hire professionals. Don't waste time working on aspects of your business that would be better left to the pros. Those first few weekends before opening, business partner Renee and our kitchen mate Thomas and I went to Home Depot to buy plywood and 2x4s and nails to build our own front counters, and we were going to put wheels on them so they could be mobile, and they'd have butcher block countertops. They'd be beautiful with subway tile on the front. Well, I wish you could have seen us hammering nails into 2x4s on the sidewalk in our best amateur attempt to build a wooden box. They held together, but they were not level. There were nails sticking out of the bottoms, and we only realized months later that we were hammering everything together instead of using screws, because that's how Renee's dad showed her to build things growing up. Except she realized that that wasn't the case. Uh, During certain home improvement projects, he would just keep her busy by asking her to hammer nails into blocks of wood, so that's how we built these cabinets. But we had to get them finished, and we had other things to do than just fix these cabinets, so they're still the counters at the front of our bakery today. And I hate them. Look, they're fine for daily use. 
it's more something in which I constantly see the flaws every day that I walk in. So if you're in the position to do so, I highly recommend you hire professionals for the projects you can't do yourself and the projects you shouldn't do yourself. As the owner, founder, leader, whatever, there are certain things in the business that you're great at doing and that you need to do because you're the only one that's going to do them. And if putting together a website or running your social media or building cabinets isn't your thing, then that's best left to someone who's great at doing that. In the short run, it seems like you're saving a lot of money by doing it yourself. But you have to think about the growth, maybe even the new revenue you could be generating if instead you use that time to lead your business. I'm happy to say that since those cabinets, I've outsourced projects to professionals and have not regretted those decisions. Now, once the cabinets were taken care of and our bakery was up and running, we spent the first few months figuring out who we are. Our first core team consisted of myself and Liz and Sam, two new friends that had been recently introduced into my life and were willing to bake with me. Sam, starting as a volunteer and then part-time and then full-time baker, and Liz joining us right after she got back from baking school in San Francisco. Together, we tried everything. We changed up recipes and moved around the baking schedules. We tried opening different days of the week and participating in events and partnerships around the city. We brought in Catherine Morgan, our bakery health coach, to observe our daily movements and then train us to move efficiently and safely around the space. It's something I had always wanted and other bakeries I'd worked in. I taught my first bagels and beer workshop, a vast improvement over the very first Just Bagels workshop, where our guests got to hang out at a local brewery after shaping bagels, rather than just sit impatiently outside while the bagels bake. We got custom whiteboard prints for our fridges, the center of our daily operations, with blank dough schedules and checklists around the workflows that are most important to us and that we need to keep track of each day. I give these examples to say that this trial period of all these new things was to find the best version for us, the best movement styles and public events and scheduling tools, for example, that we knew work for us because we designed them that way after months of testing, whether or not we knew we were testing. When introducing these systems, however, it's really tempting to just ask what other people do or turn to Google for ideas on how to schedule your bakery production. But I've found that these decisions only consistently turn out well when they're my own decisions. That is, the new systems only seem to really work in a lasting way when they come from within. Lesson three, plan in analog. Ditch the computer and take out a notebook when you need to think something through. I first wrote these 10 lessons in analog, that is, handwritten in my notebook. And by that I mean it took pages just to figure out what it was I was trying to say before it made any sense. So analog here is a tool for thinking. When issues come up where I need a new delivery route or just want to change things around our schedule, I often ask my mentors how other bakeries do it. Bakeries like mine. And they nearly always reply, you can't do that. You're your own bakery. You have to do it your way, not theirs. There's no one correct way to go about this business, and just because we all make bread doesn't mean we do it the same way. I get it now. Copying can be a starting place, but it only gets you so far. And now when I'm stuck trying to figure out what my solution is going to be, I put down the internet, and even if just for a few moments, I pick up a pen and notebook and see what my brain comes up with when I force it to slow down. When I think about what works best in our own experience, when I try to arrive at my own version that's best for me, the first time, when I make myself think the analog way. 
If you're curious, I talk more about this analog process of thinking on episode 3.2, Analog Bread. Now, this time of trial is also trial and error. That is, figuring out what doesn't work probably just as often as figuring out what does. The most challenging part in this for me was identifying the things that don't work that aren't super obvious. For the first few months, we made this infamous egg bun, a fresh brioche bun with Italian herbs that served as a bed for a soft-cooked egg on a piece of prosciutto. It was incredible. It killed on Instagram. It also took an hour to make like six of them, and the days when they didn't sell were heartbreaking because we spent so much effort, like a disproportionate amount of effort, on this one product in the midst of our busy day. So we discontinued it. Not because it wasn't great or people didn't want it, but because it wasn't what we were meant to be doing. And that became clearer as we started taking on bigger wholesale orders and we'd have to make dozens and dozens of product each day and couldn't be messing with six egg buns. Lesson four, learn to say no. Saying no defines you just as much as saying yes. Also, you'll enjoy it. It used to make me anxious that I couldn't please everyone, but now I really enjoy telling people that we don't make rolls or slice the bread or carry egg buns because each of those decisions is rooted in something that we tried to do and wasn't in line with our business's goals. And I know that choosing to not do those things frees us up to be even better at the things we are good at. On the same thought, I spent a lot of time thinking about where retail fits in for us, because it's always been a challenge. We cut back on hours to make room for other things, and there are some parts of our retail program that I'm realizing just aren't going to happen in our little space. There's no seating. Well, there are four seats, so it's not like it's going to become a bakery and coffee shop where people come to hang out. I still want it to be seen as that credible top-notch coffee shop, even if people were taking drinks to go, but that's changed too. I love good coffee, and we're so lucky to share our kitchen with a coffee roaster, but we didn't see the traffic for it. And then our espresso machine went down, like it broke, and we couldn't get a repair for over a month, and then it got repaired, and then it broke two days later, so we repaired it again, and then it broke again, and it's left me thinking that for the eight coffees we sold in a given day, I should have really been putting that effort and money, quite frankly, into bakery equipment. Because being a bakery is what we do really well, and what we do differently, and what needs attention right now to help it grow. So lesson number five, you don't need to do everything right now. The emphasis is on the right now. We still make coffee, but we brew what we're capable of and take advantage of the little counter space we have to just keep it simple with drip coffee and cold brew and good pastries and music. The bakery coffee shop combo is something I really admire that I loved in San Francisco that I really thought I wanted and maybe that isn't right for us right now, but still could be one day. We are good at other things, though, namely being a wholesale bakery and teaching baking classes. We've been expanding, getting our pastries and breads onto more and more coffee shop menus around Denver. I started for the first few months by being in the bakery every day at 4 a.m. to bake the pastries, then drive them around town, then make everything for the next day. While things have changed a lot since then, at the time, I had figured out to do that well enough that I could pass it off to Sam and Liz to take care of the day-to-day -day baking, and I got to focus on other projects. Well, now these days, Liz runs the whole show in the production lab. One of those projects is baking classes. I developed a sourdough class to teach the basics of bread theory to home bakers, and spent a few months refining that course and trying it with different groups. I also teach pasta classes and bagel workshops, all which have helped me figure out how these classes work in our kitchen with our audience so that I could pass them off to others. 
I've been building each of these pieces of the business to let other people take charge and run them on their own. Lesson six, build pieces of your business so that you can pass them off, then move on to the next piece. That means that there are now seven baking school instructors that are experts in their own recipes and stories, and I work with them to bring those to our bread school. You can hear more about that program in the third episode of the third season, More Than Just Food. I personally really love teaching others to teach their own things, but even if you won't, that trade-off process allows things to run sustainably on their own. This also means figuring out how to make things reproducible that used to just be your thing, like how to cook tomato butter or how to shape fugace. Those are examples of tasks around our kitchen that I personally did for a long time, almost to where I started to believe I was the only one that could do them. And that's stupid because tomato butter is like four ingredients, and I didn't even come up with the recipe. I learned it from someone else. And fugas, these abstract, leaf-like shaped ciabatta breads, are unique to whoever shapes them. It takes a certain touch, and I can still tell which baker shapes which bread because we all have a fingerprint of sorts, but that doesn't mean they can't all be great. And finding a standard way of doing things means that we can now all share the work. Lesson seven, it can't all be precious. Simplify, standardize, let go. I was forced to simplify and standardize how we do things when we lost our first full-time baker. Sam had been there from the beginning as a volunteer the very first week when it was just him and I and so many Danishes. Sam knew how to do literally everything because he was there when we were coming up with all the processes. They were never written down for him and he didn't go through any official training. We knew that last summer Sam would be leaving us to get married and go to grad school, but I didn't really know what that would mean. So in the time when we were hiring and training our new team, I worked 33 consecutive days in the bakery. While I rarely take days off anyway, I mean that these were full 8-12 to hour baking shifts on top of my responsibilities as the business owner. It became very clear that once things settled down, I needed to make a position that wasn't another Sam. It was a defined, trainable position all of its own so that we could hire someone with or without much experience and help guide them into their new role. The new goal now is that everyone can do everything in the bakery, but not because they've been around forever, but because we know what we do in a day and how we can train them to do the same. A few weeks into that crazy work streak, I met some new people at the bakery who asked what I did for fun, and I didn't know what to say. I said that I'm here a lot and I enjoy my work, but that was not the right answer. I hadn't even realized that since I made my hobby into my profession, I had very little else to do outside of work. Lesson eight, get a hobby, especially if your current hobby is about to become your profession. I did get a road bike at the beginning of the summer, and I've really come to love cycling. I bought the bike to commute, not realizing it would become a hobby. I've slowly come to taking longer and longer rides for fun, and I bought the stretchy pants to match. I'm so glad it's become a hobby because that bike routinely saves me from my work. I now take off one full day each week. I'd love to get two, but it's a start. And sometimes I don't feel like I need that day, but I try to take it anyway. Because doing nothing in my free time throughout the week is very different than taking intentional rest. It takes a little planning to make the most of my rest every Wednesday. I hear the irony there, but that makes me feel more productive and creative throughout the rest of the week. That brings us to now. A year later, we have a functioning bakery and are focusing on growing our wholesale 
and even survived a full farmer's market season and are in the process of looking to move to a bigger bakery space as soon as next month. So one year later, I'd like to do a little rebel bread by the numbers. We have four-ish employees, that's two full-time, two more than half-time, and one contract delivery position, 14 wholesale accounts, mostly coffee shops around Denver, 2,336 Instagram followers. I don't know if that's good or not, but I wasn't really trying to be honest, so that seems really cool that they just showed up. 59 classes and events with seven instructors for 340 students. That number is since January, so like the first three quarters of the year, to think that we hosted 59 baking classes or events. Now, please keep in mind that these numbers, especially the next ones, are still changing. It's an August to August look, noting that on day one, we had like four wholesale accounts, and now we have 14, so you get the idea. I expect these numbers will be different next year. In the first year, we did $171,000 in sales. I don't know what that means either, if it's a lot or not for a company our size, but like I've never seen $171,000, so that seems like a lot of money that just came through the bakery in exchange for baked goods. And that was 34,009 pastries sold and 15,607 loaves of bread. That last one is wild to me because I remember when I first started baking sourdough in my apartment, I kept this spreadsheet of each loaf that I baked, naming each one alphabetically after Westworld characters and tracking their metrics and characteristics so I could improve upon my baking. I remember reaching 30 loaves of bread and 40 loaves. That's a lot when you're a full-time student and it takes three days to make a loaf of bread and you only make two at a time. I don't even think I saw the hundredth loaf make it onto that spreadsheet. I obviously have not personally baked each of the 15,000 plus loaves of bread in our first year, but the fact that I hired and trained a team of people who have done that just blows my mind. So, with as much room as there is to keep growing, we're clearly doing some things right. So I want to return to the Trout Tank judges' critiques from one year ago, when the business was just one week old. They said, you need to know your numbers, you're taking on too much, and are you wearing socks? I think I'll address these by telling you what's new right now. A couple months ago, I bought a dough sheeter. It's a used Rondo Dodge like I had been hoping for that's so old I didn't even recognize it was a Rondo, like when you don't recognize a really old car brand that you would know today, but the sheeter has new blades and belts. If you're not a baker, what I just said is, I bought a machine to make croissants. I think the joke is on me here, since it was both my idea to say we would make croissants but then never actually do it, followed by a year later with my idea to actually make croissants and then have to explain myself. A couple months ago, I went back to San Francisco to work with my mentor Michael, and I was excited to brush up on my croissant-making technique. But when this idea first came to me, even months before that, it was not at all motivated by my love of croissants. For the first time, I made a business decision based entirely off of numbers, so to speak. I realized that there was an opportunity in our marketplace to add them, seeing that our clients always need or want them. That we could grow further in our current space by adding croissants rather than adding more loaves of bread. And that as a wholesale bakery, our strengths are in reliable delivery, a consistent product, and good customer service, as boring as that sounds. So if we could make a decent croissant, then our customers will probably buy them. 
and that revenue potential and an average week of croissants could pay off the needed equipment in X number of weeks. I don't know when I started talking like that, and it scares me. It caught me off guard when I realized a few months ago that this was a numbers decision. So I immediately sat down with a notebook to brainstorm fun flavor and product ideas that I might want to make. Now the project is in check again, being driven by the business idea and inspired by our passion for pastry and bread. Lesson nine, make decisions informed by numbers. Balance your strategies with passion and instinct. I spent a year making decisions based on passion and intuition. Now I have spreadsheets that cost out new products and events before I decide to make them. I'm glad to be finding a balance between the two. We had a successful Crocella. That's what we called our three-day croissant training program and music festival. There was no music festival. And now have our initial croissant menu in coffee shops across Denver, with more new products still on the way. I love that it's both exciting to our bakers and clients and makes good business sense to me. Lesson 10, don't take on too much. I think the judges were right when they said that I was doing too much. I don't think they necessarily meant there were too many things, but they knew that if we were going to be a small team at the start, and let's add nimble, then we shouldn't burden ourselves with too many things to do in too many different directions. I spent the first year making all the things happen, running a wholesale and a retail bakery, and doing farmer's markets, and teaching baking classes, and then teaching other people to teach baking classes, and I did it. All those things happened. It was exhausting, and I think I worked the equivalent of three jobs, so it's not that it wasn't possible, but it's not sustainable. I can't hire someone else and ask them to do the work of three people, and I don't want to keep doing that either. So if you are starting out, and are so excited about all of the things your project could be and all the directions it could go, and like me, you want to give them a try, I still think you should go for it. And that should come with the understanding that it can't always be that way. Otherwise, you've just created a job for yourself and a really stressful one at that. If you want to create a company, then each of those things you add to your business needs to be able to be supported by the business, not you personally. So if you're going to do lots of different things, make sure that each one of those channels can eventually have someone specific to support them and that those things pay the salaries of those people and it's all part of a healthy company culture. To the last judge, no socks, huh? Nope, I'm not wearing socks right now either. This is my style, and it's who I am, and that's how it is. I'm 24 years old, this is how I dress, and this is the way I'm running my business. Honestly here, I didn't like sharing my age till very recently. That's a newfound confidence among these lessons. I still don't go around announcing it, except you made it this far in my TED Talk, so you can know but I'm more confident to stand behind that fact right now. Because there's no right or wrong or single way to go about doing any of this. More experience might be helpful, sure, but it doesn't change the fact that I have to do this my own way. So, my closing advice to you is that if your strategic decisions are based in numbers and influenced by passion and instinct, if you create a business that can grow and thrive with you at the helm, but not depend on you to do all the things, or at least not kill you in the process, then all that's left is that no matter who you are or how you crop your pant legs, you go do your work the way that only you can do it, the way that's best for you.
Thank you for being here and for listening. If you enjoyed what I had to say, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first two and a half seasons, which explore entrepreneurship like this, as well as food, community, and identity. Please share this with any young entrepreneurs in your life and be in touch if you have any lessons you'd like to share with me. There's a get in touch page on rebelbread.com that goes to my email. If you're in Denver, I'd love to say hi if you can make it into the bakery or an upcoming event. And wherever you are, please be well, break bread with others, and I'll look forward to talking to you the next time I'm back on Against the Grain. Mm-hmm.